great. So, um, for those that have been around, we before Easter, we were doing something called the Seven Words of the Cross. And uh, for those who uh, are attentive and good at maths, you'd have realized we've only done six. So today is number seven. And then um, the long-awaited return of Matthew's Gospels next week. So we've done 40 parts of that already. And we're only in like Matthew 11 or something. So it's going to be like, by the end of that, it's going to be like Matthew part 100 um, in 2020 or something. But yeah, next week will be, well, at least I think so. What's next week? The 21st. Uh, probably the return of Matthew. So just to get your hopes up, that's what's happening next week. But before then, we have... The final words, seven words from the cross. And um, Jesus is hanging on the cross for kind of context, and he says seven things, um, seven sentences. And uh, the first one was, Father, forgive me. Forgive them, for they know not what they do, speaking of us. And then he ends uh, talking to the Father and addressing the Father as well. And what we're looking at um, this morning is widely believed to be the final words of Jesus. Now, obviously, the other six are classified as in that context, the final words of Jesus. But this one is believed widely to be the very last thing he said before he closed his eyes and he died. Okay, so I think that's significant. And um, I don't know if you've ever had this. I find these things really awkward. But you know where you're thrown into like a, a room of people you don't know? And you've got that awkward thing where you don't know anyone, they don't know anyone. And someone suggests playing some icebreakers. Oh, my they're like, uh, they're awful. I really don't like them. I go into kind of shutdown mode and give one word answers and uh, don't know what to say. But one of those is if you could be on a desert island, what would be the one thing you take with you? And so I, I thought, right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to test this out. So I tested it out last night. I asked Grace that question. I was thinking she'd come up with something really like, I don't know, just amazing. Because my answer was about so I thought, if I can go to a desert island, I'll take a boat with me, then I'm, I'm free to like, travel the world. I bet no one can be like, Grace said, I'd take Bear grills," <laughs> Which made me a little uncomfortable. And I, I didn't really know what to say. Um, and then Grace was like, well, he can do anything. He can build stuff and make stuff. And I was like, oh. So if, if Grace could take one thing to a desert island, it would be Bear grills. It's nice to know it was him, not me. Um, yeah, I know, but I'm good at being company, even if I'm not good at DIY. Um, and then there was, there's the other one, isn't there? Is there like, it used to be the case, I don't know if this actually happens, I think it does in American prisons, you know, where they kind of death row and uh, the state execute people. And um, in the movies, at least, this happens. They say, you know, what, what do you want for your final meal and, and what, what would your final words be? And you kind of go, oh, that would be a good, like, what would your last meal be? Would it be a double cheeseburger from McDonald's or would it be lobster, obviously? Or, or, or what would be your final drink? And then what are your last words? And it happens in, like, not just there, but every single Bond movie really winds me up because Bond will be completely done in, and the baddie will have him, and then it'll be like, what are your final words, Mr. Bond? And the bad guy will just reel and reel and reel, and in the meantime, Bond's like undone his stuff and fired a torpedo and got out of a tricky situation. But I found it quite interesting just thinking about, well, what are our last words? If you knew that this was it, what would your final words be? And so I had a little Google, um, and these are widely reported 
emphasis on the word reported there, to be people's kind of last words or last kind of statements. And I think they give a little reflection on what their lives might have been like. So uh, Jamaican singer-songwriter Bob Marley uh, died just aged 36. And on his deathbed, is reported to have said to his son, who's called Ziggy. How cool is that a name, by the way? That's a great name, isn't it? Anybody who's, who's pregnant and expecting children, I'm expecting a Ziggy. Um, it'd just be a great name. And he said to his son, money can't buy life. I thought that was interesting. Like He's obviously made a lot of money. And he goes, money can't buy life on his deathbed to his son. A lesson learned a bit all too late for Mr. Marley. Or there's a story of an American general, you've probably not heard of him, I hadn't, called, uh, called John Sedgwick. And he, he holds quite, he's famous for basically some famous last words, if you like. Uh, he's not famous for anything else. And he was a general in the Union Army during the American Civil War. And he had three near-death experiences before this. Three near misses of death. And so he's kind of, the impression you have is nothing can take me down. I'm a fearless leader. I'm not scared of anything. And the last words that he's reported to have said reflect this. Almost a cavalier attitude towards his enemy. Almost pride coming before the fall. And there's a battle going on and they're stood on a ridgeway and there's some enemy sharpshooters, as they were called back then, firing pot shots at them from a great distance. And all his like, men are like, you know, dipping and dodging and ducking and diving and dodging again and getting out of the way. And he's rebuking them, saying, what are you dodging for? And one of his men retorts back, I'm dodging because that's what I'm doing to save my life. And he's just stood there. Almost the picture you get is this man who's just standing there, his bullets like whiz past him, and he's not even bothered. And he says to his troops some of his last words, which are kind of ironic, uh, before he gets shot and killed. Uh, he says, they couldn't hit an elephant at this distance is what he says to his troops, don't worry, they can't hit an elephant, and then ping, and I'm not going to go into kind of the gory detail, but he gets it, and he uh, passes away. Or Winston Churchill, the kind of famous wartime prime minister, reportedly said, I'm bored with it all. That's what he says, he looked back on his life, and you can kind of imagine, oh, I'm bored with it all, I'm done, I've had enough. And then this one, really kind of, I thought was poignant, the legendary actor Humphrey Bogart, who he died of throat cancer after a long life of abusing smoking and abusing alcohol and just sadly going down that path. And he, he's said to have looked back with regret. There's a bit of kind of tongue-in-cheek in this, but I think there's some seriousness to it as well. And he's, he's reported to have said, I should have never switched from scotch to martini. But as he looks back, that's all, his, that's all that life was about. That, that's all he has to say as he looks back on what would have been a, a stonking career of some great movies that all he wishes is he changed his beverage. Now, whether they were spontaneous or whether they're premeditated, I think, regardless, they still give you a little window, don't they, into their character, into what life was about for them. Churchill obviously got bored easily. Others were like you know, ransacked with alcoholism and, and other things. Um, but it gives an idea of what they were like before that moment, what their lives had been all about. And you think of like Paul, the apostle, who's like, well, for me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. That gives you a window of what the apostle Paul was like, doesn't it? That he's, he's so like, actually, I don't mind if I die. Because actually, if I die, I get to be with Jesus, and that's better. Here we have the last words of Jesus. I think they give a window, 
a snapshot of, of his life. Luke records the dying words of Jesus Christ, who is undoubtedly the best person ever to live. Undoubtedly. The greatest person ever to walk this earth. And these are his final words. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. They're the last things. They're the window we have on his life and all that it was about. And what jumped out for me straight away is that first word that he starts with Father. That he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. There's commitment to the cause from Jesus right until the end. Right with his last breath. It's not regret. He's not looking back going, oh, I wish I'd done this or I wish I'd done that or I wish I'd been there or I wish I'd not been there. It's Father, I commit myself into your care. I commit to following through with the cause that I've said I'm going to. And that cause is rescuing you and me. Even to the bitter end, that's what Jesus is doing. He quotes Psalm 31.5, which says the exact same thing. It just doesn't have Father at the start of it. So Psalm 31.5, if you look it up in your own Bible, says, Into your hands I commit my spirit, is what the psalmist says. And then the psalm carries on and it says, You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. And so you've got to think that's in the mind of Jesus when he's saying it. That you've redeemed me, you're a faithful God. So it's great that we sang that song about the faithfulness of God this morning. I want to read the whole passage to you. Well, not the whole of Luke 23, that'll take a while. But part of Luke 23. Because I just want to briefly explore what's going on there. Because I think there's more than just meets the eye in the words of Jesus there. So this is, uh, if you've got a Bible, Luke chapter 23. And I'm reading from verse 44 to 47. It was now about the sixth hour. And there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So it's kind of lunchtime-y. So it shouldn't be dark. The sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. It's almost as if he says it and then dies. That's the immediacy of what's going on here. Literally, there's no room for him to say anything else after this. Which is why they think it was the last thing that he said. Now, when the centurion, who had been standing watching, saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. And actually, according to Matthew, the centurion says something to the effect of, surely this man was the son of God. Surely there's something special and different about this guy. And it got me thinking a little bit about, if you actually read the Gospels, um, they're all kind of varying length, but much of them, I think it's about a third of all the Gospels, if you add it all together, is, is, is on this kind of death and resurrection of Jesus. It's about the kind of cross narrative. It's about what's happening, that whether he's on trial or whether he's being beaten or whether he's being hung on a cross, about a third of the Gospels, I reckon, roughly, are concerned. That's a lot, by the way, if you consider all that Jesus did. Concerned with his death. And I was just thinking, that's interesting, actually. I wonder if that's because we all die. I wonder if that's because it's something that we'll actually be able to kind of connect with a little bit. Because for all of us, there's a guarantee of that happening at some point. And it should bring into sharp focus what our life is about. Death does that, doesn't it? Whether it's thinking about your own and our own morality or in the family or you see somebody famous who passes away, it brings our life into sharp focus. At least it should do. 
It should make us think, what am I living for? What is life all about? And Jesus, I just want to look at what Jesus' example here is. If you, like, you get a window on his character here, what his life was all about. And there's a few things here. The first one, I think, is this, that Jesus commits. The, the final thing he says is, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And to commit is to entrust something for safekeeping. That's what it means, to commit to doing something, is to, to give it for safekeeping, to entrust it. And Jesus here commits his spirit to the Father. It's important to note here that when he's talking about the spirit, he's not talking about God the Holy Spirit. He's not committing God the Holy Spirit to the Father, but he's committing his spirit, his human spirit. And you know we all have one of those, right? Some people might call it your heart. Some people might call it your soul. Some people might call it your spirit. It's who you are. Who you are is not defined about how tall or small you are or how thin or wide you are, but who you are in here. We know that, don't we? Our soul, what we stand for, what we're like, our character, our person is here. And Jesus commits that, his whole, all that he is, to the Father. He doesn't commit part of himself. He doesn't say, I'll give you this, God, but I'll keep this. He commits all that he is into the safekeeping of his Father in heaven. And the words that Jesus shouts here, I don't know if you caught that when I was reading it, he shouts in a loud voice, would be well known to his Jewish audience. The, the Jews that would be, well, the ones that were there at least, most of them had abandoned Jesus, his followers, but those that were there watching on would well know what Jesus has recited. The words that he's spoken from Psalm 31. You see, if you were a devout Jewish family, you would recite parts of Psalm 31 as you went to bed at night. So children would be brought up praying this prayer, saying, Father, or I commit my life, I commit myself into your hands, God, I commit my spirit. That's what they'd say as they rest their head at night, they would be reciting the words of Psalm 31. So as Jesus says it on the cross, there'd be a point of connection straight away. That this is the thing that we do every night before bedtime. This is what we do before we go to sleep. This is what we do if we're saying, God, I, I'm going to give myself to you, God of all comfort and God of all hope, and entrust my life to you. Because if I don't wake, then I'll be with you. They're the words that Jesus is embodying here. And it, it made me think a little bit like, it's almost as if Jesus on the cross here is saying his bedtime prayer. It's almost as if he's saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he closes his eyes and when he wakes, he's with the Father. It's like this quite moving picture of almost like his bedtime commitment, his bedtime prayer. And he dies, and he definitely dies. He doesn't go to sleep. But it's that same kind of emphasis that he closes his eyes, he's done, and he, as he opens them, he'll be with his Father. In the care of the eternal Father. Because we know it's not the end for Jesus, because death follows resurrection. But I just thought that was quite a beautiful picture, actually, as he shouts that out for them all to hear. I'm committing myself right now to the Father. In his hands I'll be. It's okay. I'm going to a better place, he says. And it's interesting he shouts that because it's laced with hope, isn't it? But if you think about what he's going through, it's laced with destruction. The cross is like the most horrendous 
piece of kind of execution, isn't it? They suffocate to death. It's a picture of the cross is a picture of of hatred in the Roman world, a picture of violence, a picture of destruction. It's not a positive image, is it? Remember when you when you go through the Alpha course, Nicky Gumbel's like starts talking about and people wear these crosses around their necks. You know, you don't see people going around there going around with gallows hanging around their necks. Yet they do the cross. It's it's symbolic of these things in the Roman world, but somehow it's changed and in and it changes from this violence, this destruction, this hatred. Even on the cross, Jesus is proclaiming comfort, peace, love, and justice. He's proclaiming the other side of what it delivers and what it brings. That he's going to be with his father. There's going to be justice. There's going to be peace. There's going to be love. There's going to be hope. Jesus goes through with, completes his radical mission of love. You know, if, if someone says to you, oh, Jesus came and he was, he, was a great, he was a great teacher, he was a wise man, and he had some memorable quotes, so I've put them on my fridge and a fridge magnet, we've missed the point. Great that Jesus is so quotable. And he did say some amazing things, but that's not the point. He's come to rescue us. That's what he came for, to deliver us from hell and give us heaven. That's what Jesus came for. He's not just a wise man who taught some nice things and did some miracles. He's a rescuer. And on the cross here, you see it. He commits himself. He follows through completely. He trusts God with all that he is. And do you know what he commits himself to? It's so easy to read over this. What does he say? He says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He's not committing himself to something vague or something mysterious or into the unknown. I think sometimes when it comes to faith and sometimes we feel like we're hedging our bets a little bit. Some people say, oh, well, I'll, I'll sort myself out on my deathbed because I'll kind of hedge my bets and I'll give it a go. That's not what Jesus is doing here. He's not hedging his bets. He's not committing himself into some vagueness, but into the hands of the Father, the hands that crafted life. The hands that created the universe. The hands that create you and me. He commits himself back towards that creator. The one who desires a relationship with us. And that means as Christians, this should comfort us. Because we're not committing into some vague, weird, mysterious thing. You know, faith is not this thing that we can't tangibly grab hold of. It's not weird, actually. It's committing ourselves to the God of the universe. It's committing ourselves into the caring and loving hands of God. And because we do that, our commitment's not in vain. You know, so many people, we make commitments that, and we make life choices that we don't keep. And those commitments and those words that we speak are just in vain, aren't they? But here, with Jesus' final breath, he's not committing himself in vain to something. He's committing himself to something so sure, something so secure. Actually, the surest thing we can do with our life is commit it to God for the next. That's the most sure thing we can do. That's the most reliable thing. The most, if you want security, if you want peace, if you want hope, if you want all those things, commit your life to Jesus. Because you'll have it. Seven years ago, roughly, maybe eight years ago, um, I was working in a public school down south. Um, and I was working alongside the chaplain of that school. And in the school was, uh, they have different like boarding houses and they'd have like, um, what are they called? House parents, yeah. And we were, um, we weren't house parents, but we were like the next one down, weren't we? We were like the ones that did all the chores, those people. And um, there was w one of these house parents where 
the husband and wife team, and the wife got very sick and uh, had cancer that was uh, declared as terminal for this lady. And uh, she was well-loved within the school, an influential person. And so the school was broken, you know, people were hurting, as you can imagine. And um, there was times of prayer and weeks of prayer, and she just got more and more poorly. And it got to the point in her life that she was so poorly that she would say, I don't want to be here anymore. I want to go and be with Jesus. She was a believer, so she wanted to go home. And she wanted, she wanted to be with Jesus forever. She didn't want to be here anymore. Even though she loved her family, she loved her friends, she wanted to go home. And I remember being in a, a prayer meeting. It must have been mid-morning. I, can't, I think it was like 10, 15, something like that. And me and the chaplain were in this room and we were praying and we wanted to pray for this lady. I'm not going to tell you what her name is. I don't think that's appropriate. But we were praying for her. And I felt compelled in my spirit to almost echo these words of Jesus. And so I prayed something like, me and this guy William prayed something like, God, into your hands we commit her. Not vague, not mysterious, but into God's hands. We pray, God, your will be done. We want you to heal her. We desperately want you to break in. But into your care... Into your way, we trust you, and we'll pray that prayer. And you know what later we found out that same day, that in and around the moments we prayed that prayer, that she died. Now, you could think that's a coincidence. I don't tend to believe in those anymore. And actually, what it equipped me and the chaplain to do was actually, we could comfort a whole load of people. So we're saying, well, actually, we know that she's gone to be with the Lord. We know that she was committed to the end. We prayed this prayer. And then she went. It was quite amazing, actually. Because for the believer, it means there's great comfort. Because for those that follow Jesus, death is not the end. It's actually just the kind of beginning to something that's even greater. New life. For those that follow Jesus, there is better to come. Almost this life is, now I know this analogy doesn't always work because some trailers are rubbish. But you know if you've got a trailer for a really good movie... You know, you watch the trailer and then the movie's even better. So it's got to be one of those trailers. Not one of the trailers where it's like you watch the trailer and you watch the movie and you think all the best bits were in the trailer. This is an analogy where the trailer's good and the movie's even better, okay? It's a little bit like that. This life is almost like the trailer. That we get some glimpses. We get some moments of heaven on earth. We get God breaking in in amazing ways and doing some amazing things. But it's not the movie. That's to come. The best is still yet to come. Death is not the end. And that comes about through committing our way in this life to the very end to Jesus. Saying, God, I commit myself to follow after you every single day. In the early church, in the years after Jesus' death, his resurrection and his ascension, his ascension is where Jesus goes back to be with the Father and he's raised up before the disciples and he goes back to be in heaven with his Father. The early church began to have a symbol of faith, a symbol of hope, a symbol of deliverance. And they could have picked anything, if you think about it. They could have picked boats because Jesus rescued them when they were, you know, on the sea. They could have picked bread because Jesus provided for them with miracles of loaves and fish. They could have picked anything. They chose the cross. They'd put it up in their houses. They'd put it up over their doorways that people would know, there's a cross here, that means I'm following Christ. That means I'm committed to following Jesus. And today, people bear crosses or wear crosses. 
identifying them, some of them, as Christians. For some people, that's what they do. Others just wear it because they like it as a piece of jewelry. It's been monopolized a little bit, sadly. But why this horrible thing? Why this thing of destruction, this weapon of torture? Is because if we commit our way to God, he rescues us. Amazing verses from Romans 5. But God showed his love for us. Read that as, for God showed his love for you. That while you were still a sinner, Jesus died for you. Isn't that amazing? That while we were still far off, while we were doing our own thing, while we were rebellious and hating God, Jesus died for us. Why? Because he loves us. So the cross becomes this place of love, this place of hope, this place of deliverance into something greater. And before anything else in this world, you know, we have so many choices. I was talking about this on Alpha on Thursday. We were looking at how God guides us today. And we kind of concluded that uh, he does in lots and lots of ways. But the world is shouting at us from every single angle with a million choices. Sky tried to do this to me like last week. They're like, but do you watch this channel? Because if you don't have Sky Atlantic anymore, you won't have Game of Thrones anymore. Or you won't have this program that I've never heard of. Or this program. I'm like, stop giving me choices. Leave me alone. I don't want your product anymore. There's just all the time. What are you going to eat? What are you going to wear? What are you going to do? Where are you going to go? All the time. I don't care. Choice, 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 choice. We have a choice. To believe whether God loves us or not. To believe whether he came and he rescued us. And before anything else in this world and all the other choices we will make about where we're going to live and what we're going to do and who we're going to marry, before that, we need a new start, don't we? Before that, we need a new life. We need Jesus. And that's the first thing. If there's, if there's lots of things to sort out in your life, you think your life's a mess, a roller coaster of ups and downs, and there's so many things to deal with, the first thing to do is get yourself right with God. The rest of it will look after himself. There might be things you've got to change. There might be things you've got to do. But God will look after the detail. He will. We've got to get ourselves right with him first. That's why Jesus died. That's why he takes the hit for us. That we can have a relationship with God. So that we, like Jesus, can say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. See, without Jesus, we can't say, Father. But because of Jesus, we can. In Jesus, we can call God our dad and because God in the person of Jesus has been committed to us and gone all the way through with what he said he was going to do because we know God's committed to us and committed in love to you we can respond to that we can put our trust in him God's love isn't flippant God's love isn't going to let us down God's love isn't something that we just throw away or is unreliable but God's love is so committed it was worth dying for That's how much he loves us and cares for us. So Jesus is committed. God's love for you is committed. And it got me thinking, well, that's all well and good, but what does it mean for us to respond to that? What does it mean for us to commit? And one of my favorite Psalms, Psalm 37, a Psalm that I think was instrumental in God bringing me and Grace together, but that's a different, that's a story for another time. Commit your way to the Lord, Psalm 37, 5. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. So I think committing your way to God then, according to the psalmist, is to trust in him. That's what it means to, to, to give over to, for safekeeping, is to entrust all that we are and all that we do to him, that he will act. 
And God has acted 2,000 years ago upon the cross, but he will continue to act. doesn't promise us an easy life. But here is the promise that actually, if we commit, if we trust in him, God will act. God will walk with us. God will be there. And so I came up with a, a few things that I'll just rattle off really quickly that I think might limit that. That my thinking about commitment is, well, why don't we commit? Why do we get the heebie-jeebies about commitment? Why do we worry or think, oh, I can't do that, or I can't follow through with that, I can't give my all for Jesus? What are those things that prevent us from trusting God properly? And I think one is that we get, because we live in a world of kind of hurt and torment, we can get so caught up in that that we actually lose hope and we get angry with God that we carry around with us disappointment. And I think if we carry around disappointment, we struggle to commit to God because we're disappointed with him. We're disappointed with the lot we've been given seemingly because we're hurting. But I think the fact that Jesus dies on the cross and he utters these words, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, should mean that our conversation is laced with hope instead. Do you see what I mean? Instead of disappointment with God, the fact that Jesus has been so committed that God loves us so much should mean our words and our language and our attitude should be laced with hope, not disappointment. That if we hope in God, we're more likely to commit to him. If we're putting our trust in him, if we're hoping in him. You see, I think commitment to God and trusting in God is the opposite spirit of moaning and murmuring. And complaint. I think complaint and trust are opposite ends of the spectrum. I think we float between the two, but we want to be trust of God, not complaint of God. You know, if we're murmuring at God, if we're moaning at God, if we're complaining at God, if we're raging at God, I don't think we're trusting God. We're expressing disappointment in Him. And actually, if we rewind, and we go, whoa, hold on. Jesus is on the cross and he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus sets the example of what it is to follow after God. Jesus gives me hope that actually I too can follow after him whatever my lot. And whatever our lot, as, as difficult as the challenges we face, Jesus was crucified for a sin he didn't commit. For no wrong was found within him. He was perfect. And yet there was no moaning, murmuring, complaint or rage. Instead, just trust. Because I think we've got to be reminded paradise awaits. This is not it. Sometimes this sucks. But it's not it. There's more to come. There's better to come. This isn't it. If it was, oh man, we'd have case to be disappointed, wouldn't we? The stuff that we carry the things that happen to us, but it's not. And so I think that, that we can commit and commitment and trust of God looks like hope. Looks like saying this isn't the end, there's more to come to put our trust in him. I think as well, another thing that stops us from trusting God is fear. And I think that takes on lots of forms. Um, I think fear is the opposite spirit to faith. It's it, again, like if complaint and murmur are the opposite to kind of trusting in God and the language that we'd use of trust, I think fear is another one that we're so caught in fear that we're not expressing faith in God. 
that we're not expressing the faith that all his promises are yes and amen. That's, that's, a, faith, that's a faith built statement, isn't it? Trust is to say, faith is to say, I can't see what lies ahead, but I know I'm in God's hands. That's why Jesus says it. He knows he's in God's hands. That's what faith is. I can't see what's coming tomorrow. I don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. It could be a nightmare. It could be ace. But regardless, I'm going to entrust myself into God's care. Because I think otherwise, we're paralyzed by fear. And if we're paralyzed by fear, we never step out in faith. Because we're always afraid of what might be, what they might say, what happens if it goes wrong. Maybe we're afraid to trust God because we think his plan for our life isn't as good as our own plan. I'll confess this. There have been many moments in my life where I've gone, if I was God, mate, I wouldn't be doing it like this. I'd be playing this very differently. But you know what my reflection is? Thank God I'm not God. (laughs) I look back now and I think, oh, I get it now. Thank you. Like at the time, I'm thinking, God, I don't know what you're doing, but this doesn't seem right. But he knows better than I know. And sometimes we're so afraid to trust God because we think his plan isn't good for us. Well, his plan is one of love for us. His plan is that we'll be with him forever one day. Maybe we're afraid to relinquish control of our life. We're, we're afraid to commit all that we are. Because it means letting go of some stuff. It means dealing with some stuff in our heart. It means dealing with the fact we've not forgiven some people. And that can be a bit scary. But the call here is to go all in. The call here is for, with all that we are. To commit wholeheartedly. I was thinking about, um, I was watching um, a bit of Formula One yesterday afternoon. I was trying to indoctrinate Evangeline Elijah into Formula One. Um, which didn't go very well. <laughs> they didn't care less, actually. Um, the cushions were more exciting than the F1. But like with Formula One drivers, right, if they, if they don't commit to the corner, if they kind of half-heartedly go into the corner, do you know what happens on like a greasy or a wet track? Either they lose a whole load of time or it spits them out the other side. They either go all in or nothing at all. They've got to commit because otherwise they're spat out. It's not worth anything. And I thought... Oh, that's kind of like faith. Like, we can't just sit on the fence of, maybe Jesus loves me, maybe he doesn't. Today he does. Tomorrow he doesn't. But wholeheartedly saying, committing our whole self to him. To commit to God means to commit to his control over your life. In full. In total. Not just part Because in part, I think we're just going to get spat out the other side. It'll be messy and we'll get hurt. Not because God hurts us, but because we hurt ourselves. Because we've not entrusted ourselves to God's care. We've not entrusted ourselves fully into his hands. Another one, just quickly, is maybe the fear of man. Fear of what others might say, you know, especially if, like, you're new at work and you're introducing yourself, you know, and you're having a bit of a chat. Is oh, do I let them know that I'm a Christian and maybe I don't want to join in with what they're doing? Do I want to take a stand or want to be seen as different? What happens if they don't like me anymore? Well, our fear of God should be greater than our fear of man. <laughs> That's a scary thing to say. I don't enjoy saying that, but it should be. And actually, our relationship with God should supersede our other relationships. Like, you know, I've got lots of relationships, you know. I've got a relationship with my wife, the relationship from father to daughter, father to son, with friends, with 
relatives, but my relationship with God should supersede all that. Should be more important than all that. And actually, the better my relationship with God, but the better husband I am, the better father I am, the better friend I am. Because I'm walking well with God. Like, before all else, we sort out ourselves with God. We commit our way. Don't worry about what man says. Worry about what God says. Put yourself before him. The creator of the universe matters more. And another one, the last one I want to kind of bring up of maybe why we fear of commit is, and maybe you struggle with this, the fear of being wrong. What happens if I've got this God stuff wrong? What happens if I'm staking my life on this and it's just not real? And some of us don't commit. Some of us don't go all in and be able to pray that almost that those words of prayer that Jesus brings through fear of it not being right. And I just want to draw your attention to the end of those passage, that passage that I read from Luke. Luke 23. And there's a Roman centurion stood watching. And he has probably been involved in the execution and, and, and death dealing of hundreds of people. He's a pro. He's seen it all. He's seen them cry. He's seen them laugh. Probably. I'm making that up. I don't know. I'm guessing. He'd have seen it all. And yet, what he says after Jesus has died is really significant. In Luke's gospel, he says, surely this man was innocent. But according to Matthew, his reflection on Jesus dying upon the cross is this. Surely this man was the Son of God. I don't think we can debate whether Jesus existed. I think it's like, even atheists will say Jesus was a man. He clearly lived because there's evidence for it. And I think actually when you look into the detail, there's evidence that he definitely died as well. That this happened. And the Roman centurion watching on says, surely, surely this was the son of God. Something about his character, something about the way he dies. Maybe even the final word he says. This commitment until the end was there was something different about this guy, Jesus. Just look at his life. What was it about? Why would he exclaim, surely this was the Son of God? And I think it has to be out of the love that we're seeing in Jesus for us. Think about the things he said upon the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Today, you're going to be with me in paradise. Son, Behold your mother. You've got a new family. You're not alone anymore. Forsaken. He was forsaken so that we don't have to be. All these things, all these words he utters, he thirsts on our behalf. All so that we can know the love of God. And so I suppose the question I want to kind of boil this message down to is this. And only you can answer this for you. Who are you going to trust your lives to? Who are you going to give it to now and for your future? Who do you trust it to? Do you trust it to yourself? Do you trust it to your mate? Do you trust it to your neighbor? Or do you trust it to the creator of the universe? Can you pray that prayer that Jesus prays? Can you say that psalm? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. You know what it is? It's an open invitation to come home. It's an open invitation from God the Father 
to be with him forever. That whatever we've done, wherever we've been, however we feel, if we're facing death even, that brings stuff into focus for us. God says, come home. That we can commit our spirit to him. And it won't be found wanting. It won't be lacking. But it's into the everlasting hands of God. If we would just repent, turn around, and put our trust in him. So who are we going to trust?